0: Amen. Wow. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, choir and Dr. Ehler, accompanist. That's a Jim Ayler original piece. You don't hear a lot of bad. Yeah. Awesome. I came into choir on Wednesday night and I, I said, who wrote this? And I, I, I knew who wrote it, but I, I threw open the, the book and I said, who, who in the world wrote this? And Jim was like, oh, no. And I said, I, yeah, it's Jim. I knew that. It was awesome. You don't hear a lot of Baptist pieces about the Holy Spirit, about uh, being spirit-filled. Laura, one of our new members, comes from a, a kind of a charismatic Assembly of God church and she said, now, I kind of like to raise my hands a little, and I was like, we need some more of that. We need some more spirit-filled uh, worship. So without the Holy Spirit, we're wasting our time. So thank you, uh, Jim, for, for leading us so well and for creating such beautiful pieces. This town is full of musical talent. It's amazing to me, and what's really amazing is that not only is it so talented, but you have such humble, uh, genuine Christian musicians who really aren't in it for their own glory, but are genuinely like Aaron Duncan, like Jim Ayler, like Aaron LeGrone, our Wednesday night uh, midweek leader, Uh, they're just such humble servants of the Lord. They're not doing this for money. Uh, They're doing it because they love the Lord and because they uh, love using their musical gifts to further the kingdom. So thank you again, Jim, for being here today. It is another challenging text. You know, when I decided to preach through 1 Corinthians, I knew some things about 1 Corinthians already, and I knew that it was a church that had some issues, and I thought, It'd be a really relevant book to preach to Woodmont as we become healthier as a church together. I knew that it addressed a lot of these uh, issues that churches had. It also fit nicely between Galatians, which we started in January, and Philippians, which we're going to get to uh, this fall. Eventually, I promise we will get to Philippians, but I didn't think about specific passages within 1 Corinthians that would be extremely difficult for any preacher to preach on a Sunday morning while children are present and that sort of thing. So this morning we have another challenging text, but here's the thing, okay? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness— that the man of God, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I love how the New Living Translation puts it, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Therefore, we should consume a steady diet of God's word in its entirety. We should have all kinds of scripture. We should have Old Testament, New Testament. We should have books of history. We should have the New Testament letters. We should have prophecy. We should have gospel readings, wisdom literature, all of those things. In Acts 20, uh, verse 27, the apostle Paul meets with the the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus, and he tells them, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. I didn't avoid the tricky bits is what he's saying. And when you preach expositionally through a book of the Bible, you can't help but deal with the tricky bits. So today, we're going to be confronted with what Al Gore may refer to as some inconvenient truths of the Bible, but they are truths nonetheless. And God's Word often has a way of of breaking down our preconceived ideas of what is right and what we think is true and good, and then building back up a new and, and better understanding of reality. We all have our ideas of how we think life should be or how life ought to go for us. We all have a vision of what we believe the good life is, what we think the good life is all about. But life seldom, if ever, in my experience, I don't know about you, but it rarely works out the way I think it should. My plans and my vision for what I think life should be rarely comes to fruition. Why is that? Because God is sovereign and we are not. You don't see something coming like open heart surgery, right, John? You don't see something coming like a a big move out to the country, right, Brayden and Emmy? You don't see things coming like that, but they, they come and God's in charge and we realize in those moments, we are definitely not. And some preachers would tell you that if you really believe in God, and if you really are doing the right things and paying your tithes especially, then your vision of the good life will come true. But that's nowhere in scripture. In our our current uh, culture of expressive individualism where everyone's trained to live out their own desires against society, this may sound appealing to be able to control your your destiny, to be able to fulfill your own expectations for how you think life should go. I'm seeing this everywhere now. Just this past week, uh, May, our fourth grader had a school uh, choir concert, and uh, Camila was there and uh, others that uh, joined in the choir, and they sang a song from Uh, Disney's high school musical, you uh, older uh, Gen Z or younger millennials will, will know these words from we're all in this together. Here and now, it's time for celebration. I finally figured it out that all our dreams have no, what Michaela, you probably know, have no limitations. Have no, all our dreams have no limitations. That's what it's all about. We make Our dreams come true. We're teaching our children this before they're even old enough to realize that your dreams probably aren't going to come true. That's the reality. Jesus told us in this world you will have tribulation, but that's not what is really taught in in our culture but isn't it more honest, isn't it more authentic to ask what happens when your dreams don't come true? What we're gonna see in our text for today is some practical wisdom for how to flourish in whatever situation we find ourselves. Being, uh, you know, fleeing a war-torn country like um, Pastor Ezekiel did or like the Yarbros did over here from the Ukraine. That's a situation that they didn't see themselves in. I was talking to a Ukrainian mother from our weekday preschool, Yulia. She goes by Julia now and she had a friend with her at the the graduation ceremony and her friend had just gotten over here from Poland. Uh, She was from Ukraine but she had been in Poland for two months trying to get a visa to come to America. She said the conditions in Poland were terrible. And her 13 year old son is with her and he's attending school online when his teacher is not under an air raid from 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. every day online as he tries to finish seventh grade in Ukraine. And she said to me, three months ago, everything was normal. No one could have predicted what's going on right now in Ukraine. We never thought something could happen like this. What do you do? when you find yourself in a situation that you never could have seen coming. I'm, I'm gonna suggest that you seek God's best for whatever context you may find yourself in. So our outline for today is a little tongue in cheek, Joel Osteen maybe uh, you know, not find this funny, but your best life now, the life that God has assigned, your best life now isn't one that you create through your obedience to God or how much money you give to the church, your best life now is the one that God has assigned to you. It's kind of like that old adage, it's not in the Bible, but it's I think biblical in its nature, bloom where you are, what, planted, bloom where you are planted. That implies that you're not the one who planted yourself, but a higher power a sovereign being who you are not planted you there. Bloom where you are planted. What we're gonna see in in 1 Corinthians chapter seven is that the best life that we can possibly live is the one which God has picked out for us and gifted us with no matter where it may take us. For some, it, it may mean blooming in the context of marriage in the context of the most important earthly relationship that you may have, the one with your spouse. Point one on your outline is is God's best for married couples. In the first seven verses, we're gonna see God's best. This whole month, we're talking about living into God's best because God's ways, as instructed in scripture, are always best. And we have these competing voices in the world that say, no, 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 make your own dreams come true. That's best. And then we have scripture saying, no bloom where you're planted. That's actually best. And God's ways actually lead to flourishing. The Corinthian Christians were very confused, okay, about a lot of things. And one of those things was marriage and divorce. They didn't understand it. So they they wrote to Paul a letter, we don't have that letter, but he was their spiritual father, he had planted the church there, he had discipled them, he had baptized many of them, and they asked him these questions, but the, the funny, not funny, it's terrible, the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, he says, yeah, 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 I got your letter, I'm gonna deal with that in a minute, but first, I've heard there's a lot of terrible things happening in your church, there's blatant sexual sin, There is rampant divisions over which preacher is more popular and who baptized who. There are social divisions. You you guys are, are, are messed up on so many things. So the first six chapters, he basically says, cut it out. Stop doing these terrible things. And then finally here in chapter seven, he says this, starting in verse one. Now, he's like, now, lecture over. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man, this is a quote from their letter, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. That was very progressive in these ancient days. That sounds like something you'd hear Today, out of a feminist camp, but it's in the Bible. And likewise, the wife to her husband. A lot of Christians who understand that we are spiritual beings have a tendency to disconnect our bodies from our faith. They believe either, you know, one of two things. One is that what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter now because we're spiritual beings, so we can do whatever we want. Or the other thing is that we should be very uh, ascetic, and we should be disciplined like a hermit and just avoid any kind of physical pleasure. Paul says both these things are wrong, okay? We live in an embodied faith. God took on flesh, right? We live as holistic beings, mind, body, and soul, and each aspect deeply affects the other two, when your physical health is out of whack, it, 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 it messes up your spiritual and mental health. When your mental health is out of whack, your spiritual and physical health. We are holistic creatures. I should have had you preach, Daniel. You're like marriage therapist. You should have done this whole lesson. These, these guys are like marriage uh, experts and counselors. Uh, I'm, I'm not that. Uh, but we are holistic beings. And when one part's out of whack, the other parts are too. The Corinthian church apparently thought that no Christian should ever engage in, in physical intimacy of any kind. But Paul says, no, 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 no. There's a moral place for it in the context of Christian marriage. And again, Paul's way ahead of his time. I know like when we get to chapter 11, I've already had a church member tell me, I don't like that chapter 11 where he says women should be quiet. I was like, I know, I know. We'll deal with that when we get to it. But Paul seems, you know, misogynistic. He, he gets billed as chauvinistic. I, I get it. But look at verses four and five. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Okay, that's the sermon. Let's go. Is that, no, wait, wait. There's more. There's more. Keep reading. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What? That's, that's, that's crazy talk, Paul. Do not deprive one another Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control The Christian life, okay, the gospel-centered life is about learning how to die to yourself And how to live for God and for others more fully That's the best way to live cheerfully giving ourselves away, pouring out our lives for the sake of God and for others. It's the only way to live. It's how the gospel of Jesus enables and compels us to live. And there's this beautiful mutual submission. Everybody reads from like Ephesians 5 you know, wives, submit to your husbands at a wedding, but they don't always read verse 21 that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's this beautiful deference, right? A, A mutual kind of submission that Christians, they don't fear being walked on. They don't fear being a doormat because they believe that God has actually empowered them and that in our weakness, we are made strong by his perfect provision. I, I do think that there's, we can get into more of this later. This is tricky ground here, but, but I love how open Paul is. He's very flexible in all this. This is kind of gray area stuff that, that Paul's kind of dealing with here. He, he, he is gracious in his uh, rules. Verse six, he says, I, I say this as a concession, not as a command. He's, he's not imposing temporary abstinence in a marriage, but he's allowing for it. It's like him quoting the Corinthians in chapter six, where they said, all things are permissible. We're under grace now, we can do whatever we want. He says, yeah, that's true, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are beneficial, I think the NIV says. He's very flexible in this. What is God's best? What is gonna lead ultimately to flourishing? Paul himself was single. Okay, look at how he frames marriage and singleness in verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. That would be a lot less complicated. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. We don't know why Paul was single. Maybe his wife left him after his conversion to Christianity. Maybe she died. Or, Or maybe... He never married because Paul was so busy either persecuting Christians or later planting churches and advancing the gospel across the world. Whatever the case, he says here in verse 7, both marriage and singleness have advantages that should be considered as gifts from the Lord, that God has gifted you according to your station in life. Sometimes we say that the Bible, I've said this before, the Bible says it's better to be single than married. It doesn't really say that. Paul's not elevating one over the other, okay? He's saying to bloom where you are planted, to be grateful for whatever your station in life. Now, we need to point out here that the church and the culture usually get this wrong, that usually they incorrectly treat marriage as the ideal. Yes, marriage is the norm in this society. That's why he says a man should you know, have his wife, a wife should have her husband. That's the norm, but it's not, it's not the ideal. A local Anglican teacher, Peter Valk, he he came here and spoke to our staff. He wrote a blog I read recently about what he calls romance idolatry. He says romance is, quote, an emotional desire for sensual love with another person and the courtship behaviors undertaken by an individual to express those feelings on a trajectory of erotic love. And he says that romance idolatry takes root long before the age that a person can marry. Disney movies and Taylor Swift songs teach our children that magically coupled love is the best thing the world has to offer. Single adults, that is not true. That is an idol that we often make of romantic love. And I think the church is complicit in this too, guys. It's not just Disney. We love to rail against Disney. <laughs> the church is, has messed up too. Please do not say to our, I know you're well-meaning, I know you are, but don't say to our single adults, why hasn't anybody snatched you up yet? Just stop saying that, please. Don't, don't say, oh, you're, you're, you're so attractive. Why has no one picked you up yet? Don't, that's not helpful. It's not the ideal. Let's, let, don't ask them, when are you gonna get married? Perhaps the Lord has given them the gift of singleness, at least for a season. Volk, Peter Volk says the idol of romance isn't just a lovey-dovey feeling, it's a, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It promises us love, belonging, family, pleasure, and an escape from loneliness. Only Jesus can provide those things in their entirety. Marriage cannot do it. It, uh, No amount of romance can do it either. We need to affirm singleness as not only a valid Christian lifestyle, but as one with distinct advantages. And we need to love one another in such a way that we are family. And this church is really good about it, but we still have room to go and that we embrace our single adults as part of our family, that we have intimate relationships where we know each other well. I'm so grateful for the singles who've poured into my little family over the years, from helping Jude with his golf swing, to to bringing their pets over to our house, to doing arts and crafts with May. They're like beloved aunts and uncles to my family. Next, Paul gives a general word to all of us here. God's best for all of us is is simply faithfulness. That's point number two on your outline. God's best for all of us is faithfulness. Verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, to stay faithful in your singleness. Verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul's not saying it's bad to marry or to remarry. I mean, it's good to be single, he says. It's good to you know, get a PhD, but you're not a second-class citizen if you don't. That's what he's saying here. It's good to be an ordained minister, but you're not a second-class citizen if you're not. What Paul's saying is that when the desire between two people is so strong that it distracts them from the centrality of the gospel in their lives, then yeah, go ahead and get married. And then Paul speaks to married couples again in in, in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Be faithful in your marriage, is what he's saying. Look, we know that marriage is hard. Giving yourself to another person is not easy. Morgan and I have been to marriage counseling often and we're not ashamed of it and we're not shy about telling people that. We all need help. Uh, One of our staff members was saying, I'm gonna put marriage counseling on my wedding registry when I get married because it's so helpful to have it, right? We all need help and a third party expert is a welcome blessing in my marriage for sure. Uh, Christian marriage is a sacred thing. It should be taken seriously. The vows that we make are sacred on our weddings. You know, Catholics, they call it a sacrament. Marriage itself is a holy and sacred means of grace. I'm not going to go that far, but it is sacred. What happens in a Christian marriage is a divine miracle. Two individuals becoming united as one. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, uh, verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We live in an anti-commitment age. A church member was telling me just this week about a man who walked away from his marriage after his wife gave birth to a beautiful baby boy with Down syndrome. That's not, that's not just sinful, that's, that's destructive evil. We know that Satan is trying to destroy families, and marriage is is one of the core components of families. He would love to ruin your marriage if you're married here today. In in this anti-commitment age, it's it's easy, legally, to, to get a divorce. Divorce was an easy arrangement with the Roman government in the age of the Corinthian church as well. The word used for divorce here means to send away. And a lot of Corinthian men, we know from history, would just send their wife away for all kinds of superficial reasons. Women were married and married and married and married to many different husbands in this age because Roman law made it so easy. But Christian marriage should only be dissolved for the most severe reasons. Sexual immorality, abuse, or something equally egregious. And no one should stay in an unsafe marriage, okay? I, I want that to be clear. But neither should marriage be treated lightly in those marriage vows. If you need help with your marriage, I'd love to talk with you about it. I have a, a drawer full of cards of licensed marriage and family therapists that I could refer you to who know more than I do. Talk to Daniel and, and Tetiana, They do marriage uh, workshops all the time. They could help you as well. We have resources here, guys. No one needs to walk this alone. Next, Paul shows us God's best for Christians who are married to unbelievers, what what a lot of commentaries refer to as a mixed marriage. Point number three on your outline. Verse 12 says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. He's saying this is just kind of like Paul's opinion here that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. That doesn't mean that he's saved, it means that he's conformed to the image of God through his believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. For in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Isn't Paul gracious and open here? I love it. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? A Christian is their unbelieving spouse's best hope for salvation, right? Right? Uh, It's the best hope of coming to know the Lord and living into God's ways. You know, their children and their spouse may not be saved, but at least they're going to be more like God because they will be conformed through their witness of the spouse. And here's the key part of this whole text, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her, and to which God has called him or her. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I looked that one up. It's a real thing. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For as Jim said earlier, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Did you hear Pastor Ezekiel's request? That they would minister in the righteousness of God. He wants to to maintain a holiness, a standard of keeping God's commandments. He takes it seriously, and so should we. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? That's like an indentured servant, like a slave almost. Don't be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. That's the gospel. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. I know the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. The great resignation. Pastors are, are not different than anybody else. We're like, oh, it'd be nice to go over there and, and do that certain thing, right? We've all uh, wrestled with FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. As a seven on the Enneagram, I'm always uh, scared I'm missing out on something, that there's better circumstances somewhere that I'm missing out on. Other people are stuck in the, the glory days, the good old days, like Uncle Rico and Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, if Coach had only put me in, we'd have won state, right? That's, that's kind of where a lot of people live, And Satan would love to keep us there, to have us wallow in self-pity and second-guess all of our choices, past, present, and future. But God tells us our social status doesn't matter. The size of our bank account doesn't matter. Where we're from doesn't matter. Verse 19 says, all that matters is keeping the commandments of God. Living into God's ways wherever we may find ourselves, is how we bloom where we are planted. Living into the ways of God is how we live our best life now. Our lives are not our own, so living for ourselves makes no sense. It's a dead end. Living by God's grace and for his glory is how we flourish as human beings, made in his image and bought with his blood. Let's close with a word about God's best for singles. The the ESV uh, translate the word for singles here as betrothed, but it probably refers to young people who are of marrying age. Maybe they're engaged or not, it's not clear. Start in verse 25, concerning the betrothed, the young people of marrying age, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's so nuanced and and open-minded here. He's not harsh. Paul simply wants us to take the long view, to understand the temporary nature of any earthly commitments. Look at verse 21. If you do marry, you've not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. O Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. As Jonathan Edwards prayed. The Christian life isn't meant to be a burden either. When we take the long view, we live in freedom. Look at verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. Isn't it interesting he assumes, husbands, that you are anxious about pleasing your wife. I hope that's the case. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to what really matters, to the Lord. All right, so what do we do with all this? Let me just give you a few takeaways. First, deference is a mark of the cross-shaped life. Deference, deferring to the other for the sake of the gospel. Man, you see people in traffic all the time, vying for position, cutting off people, getting first. As a Christian, you say, go ahead, man. <laughs> I got all the time in the world. <laughs> I got eternity on my mind. We enjoy submitting to others out of a reverence for Christ. Christian marriage is therefore marked by an intentional mutual, sacrificial posture toward the other. Christian singleness is marked by an intentional, mutual, sacrificial posture to the other as well. Second, marriage can never take the place of Jesus. So many marriages fail because one spouse, usually a Christian spouse, wants the other to be what only Jesus can be. But no one can replace Jesus. In his book The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller says, without a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Christ now, and hope in a perfect love relationship with Him in the future, people will put too much pressure on marriage to fulfill them. Third, marriage, singleness, and divorce are not one size fits all kinds of issues. Paul is gracious here. We need to show grace as well. We need to be prayerful in our discernment in how we consider real life examples. There are people who carry all kinds of baggage from broken marriages and we need to be sensitive to that. And there is grace and there is redemption from those wounds, I promise you. But I pray that Woodmont would be the kind of Christian community that both treats marriage with the utmost respect and honors it as a lifelong commitment but also reaches out to protect those who've been hurt, who've been mistreated, and to those who are vulnerable now. Fourth and finally, either marriage or singleness can can both be amazing tools in the hand of a sovereign God to conform us to his own image. If only we will see it that way and allow him to use it. We ought to bloom where we are planted, knowing that God is using our context Even if you're escaping refugee, even if you are uh, broken from a previous marriage, God is using your context as a tool to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word instructs us in these very practical day-to-day matters. God, we know that it's, it's not easy, either one, to live as a single when especially when life hasn't gone as you thought it would go. It's not easy to be married and to give yourself away to someone else and to die to yourself and put their needs ahead of your own. And yet, God, I pray that you would both enable singles to pursue whatever life you've called them to with joy with gratitude and with holiness, and that you would enable our married couples to, to strengthen their bond not only with each other, but more importantly with you in a way that, that, that structures their family life in the way that you would have it to go and that they're models for their children what a sacred union not only a husband and wife have with one another, but that union is a reflection of the union that you have with us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen marriages in our church I pray that you would use uh, the the resources that we have to to strengthen that bond. God, I thank you for those who've walked the the journey of faithfulness, and I pray for those who've endured divorce and who have been uh, broken uh, through a series of of, uh, sinful uh, issues in, in their lives and in the lives of their spouse. God, we pray that you would heal them, that you would heal those wounds that only you can restore, that you would help us to wrap our arms around them in loving. Ways that that validate their experience and also help them to to heal and move forward in the healthy way that you would have them to go. Lord, we need your help. We need your grace. None of us can do this on our own. So we do ask, as the choir sang so beautifully just a few moments ago, that your Holy Spirit would come and fill us and that we would be emptied of sin and pride and all the things that, that cause us to struggle against the healthy flourishing life that you have for us in this season where we are now. We pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.